You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. There was a study that came out the year before the pandemic called Quantifying and Predicting Success in Show Business. Now it starts off by saying that the unemployment rate for actors hovers around 90%. Now remember, this was before COVID, when unemployment shot up to basically 100% for all of us. But more recent statistics, however, are showing us bouncing back with about 85% of actors unemployed at any given time, while only 12.08% earn more than $1,000 a year. Now, any actor who's been around this business for a while has probably heard these doomsday numbers before. We all know it's a tough business, but hey, that was them. I'm different. I can make it. But if there's one thing I hope that you've gathered from listening to this podcast is that making it can mean many different things, and it can happen in any number of ways. This is why being a multi-hyphenate can be extremely beneficial, not only for us professionally, but personally as well. Hi, my name is Michael Kushner. I'm from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I currently live in Manhattan, New York, and I am an actor, photographer, producer, writer, podcaster, and educator. From that list of job titles, you can see that Michael is an expert at multi-hyphenating. And yes, that is a verb. In fact, earlier this year, Michael released his first book titled How to Be a Multi-Hyphenate in the Theater Business. It's full of conversations, advice, and tips from his wonderful podcast called Dear Multi-Hyphenate. More importantly, though, he's the partner and soon-to-be husband of another former guest of this podcast, Remy Germanario. And so it's great to bring Michael here to talk about his own career, the challenges he's faced in figuring out its many paths, and what it's taught him about his own value and worth as an artist. that stuff that I'm auditioning for lives in me so deeply. And I am not, I do not feel I need to audition for every single thing because I have other ways I'm telling stories that are fulfilling. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode here on Why I'll Never Make It, an award-winning theater podcast hosted by yours truly, Patrick Oliver-Jones an actor and singer for more than 30 years. Every other week, I talk with fellow creatives who bring us stories from their own life of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe, donate, and find past episodes. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome, Michael. It is so good to have you here. So good to see you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Good to see you too. I'm so, I'm so happy to be talking with you. 
Well, you and I have known each other for a while, and I've, I've known your partner, Remy, as well, and you two are in the process of getting married. So yeah. this, is, this is a very exciting. Congratulations to you. How have the plans been going? Expensive. <laughs> right? It's crazy how much oh. things cost. A I regular spoon is cheap. A wedding spoon is much more expensive. Much more expensive. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's why like, when we were originally like coming up with the plans, Remy... We were thinking about restaurants. And I was like, don't mention them. It's a wedding. Like, just see if we can like it. You know what I mean? Just it's, an it's a party. It's a party. But, you know, eventually it has to come out in the wash and just be like, oh, yeah, well, it is a ceremony and we have an officiant coming and it's so much. It's so much. But it's a good much. You know, it's um, and it's around the corner. So um, we're excited. It's great. That's wonderful. Well, well, let's let's go ahead and dive into these stories. We're going to go back a few years, okay. back when you were twelve years old, uh, and yes, yes and, and you were saying just three years ago, right? Just a, just a handful of years ago, <laughs> and you told me that you were about to make your New York City debut yeah. in a show called A Stoop on Orchard Street, which is a new show to me. So I, I I can't wait to hear more about it. However, it was actually your competition as you put it, who wound up going on instead. So what is this show and what led up to you being offered? Yeah, I want to say a few things. A Stoop on Orchard Street was basically like the naked boy singing, but for 90-year-old Jews, right? So like (laughs) the show originated in Nashville, I think, and then it went off-Broadway and in the middle of the off-Broadway run, they decided to open it up in South Florida, where there's a very heavy Jewish population. So we did it at the Stage Door Theater, which many actors know about in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Carl Springs, but this was the Wilton Manors location. And Stage Door Theater doesn't exist anymore, just recently closed, but I grew up there, so I was, you know, a local hire. And I had only been really performing for about two, three years. and my grandma saw a newspaper article of them looking for a kid to do this show. And um, I auditioned and I booked it that night. And um, I all of a sudden had my first professional gig. The gig was eight shows a week. But as we were sort of, you know, quote unquote, negotiating, wasn't really negotiating. It was just, you know, making sure that I could leave school for matinees, you know, which I did. But um, they were like, we also want to get Michael an alternate. We want him to do sit. It was very Phantom of the Opera. I I was basically Christine. Um, (laughs) He's going to do six shows a week and his alternate will do two. So they hired an alternate who I'm very good friends with to this day. So I want to make sure that like there is no animosity. Um, But Aaron Gross, who went on to go do 13 on Broadway, the original Archie was my alternate. And he did the two performances and I did the six. And I don't, there, it was, there was like young, you know, competition. Like, it, you know what I mean? It was like, it, it, it was young. It wasn't actually, it didn't like last, you know what I'm saying? It was just like, um, it was like, I don't want to hear how he's doing. Like, I don't want to know if he's, if he, you know what I mean? Very just like, <laughs> yeah. just diva behavior at freaking, you know, 12 and 13 years old. But that was a super nursery. And so it became a, a huge hit off Broadway. It went for like three or four years off Broadway. 
And regionally, it so we were supposed to run for a month. We wound up running six months in South Florida, which uh, because all the Altacacas wanted to come see it again and again and again, which was awesome. And the off-Broadway run was starting to end. They basically had announced closing and they said, we want you to close it because you, we just, we love you and we want you to close it. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to make my New York off-Broadway debut. And I don't know what happened, but they said it to my face and my parents. I remember. I don't know what happened. I have no idea. But then all of a sudden, next thing you know, I'm being told that I'm now going to do eight shows a week in Florida. Hmm. And I said, where's Aaron going? New York. So they chose your alternate over you. I think that was when I very quickly learned that if I was going to be in this industry, I needed to suck it up and not take anything personally very early. And I was 12 and 13 and yet hurt. But I remember being like, well, good for him. You know what I mean? Like being like upset about it, but understanding very fast that you know, if if I was going to have longevity in this industry, couldn't really be upset about many things because, you know, it was out of my control. I do not know what happened. I still to this day do not know why I didn't go. And Aaron went and I can't like it's like still like uh, I'm talking about it and I'm still like, oh, my God, if I dwell on it too much, like if I try to unpack that, I'll go down a spiral that actually i protected myself that's i think why i do have longevity in this industry is because i had that conversation with myself at a very early age being like suck it up dude i mean i think it was probably different words because i was 12 and 13 and my my you know my communication was different but i had to you know learn very early to do that well, yeah, I'm, and, and it's also interesting that as you were giving me these stories for this particular one, you use that word competition uh, because it, it can sometimes feel like that. You know, as much as theater is a community, there's this sense of a limited number of roles for a limited number of actors, and you know, we're up against other people for these roles. Does that still feel the case that you are in competition with others? No, it's actually interesting. Aaron and I stayed in each other's orbit for a while. Um, we're still very good friends and, you know, we hang out and I love him. You know, all these years later, two gay guys, you know, living in New York and he's like my little brother, really. And um, all of what I'm talking about is just such a distant memory. Um, and that could have been anyone. It could have been Joe Schmo off the street, but it was, you know, it was him. So it, there's nothing against him. It just happens to be a lesson that I learned. It could have been anyone. But, uh, you know, we stayed in each other's orbit for a while because then we wound up playing brothers in a show called The Loman Family Picnic at Caldwell Theater Company in Boca. And Rachel B. Jones played our aunt. And then I was in callbacks for 13 on Broadway and he wound up booking 13 on Broadway. And that must be tough when the same person over and over again gets yeah. rolls over you. Yeah, I mean it 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 was I always say that I've I only cry I've only cried twice in this industry and one was when I didn't get a head mic uh when I played Kaniki when I was 11 years old. 
because it didn't matter what role you played. If you didn't get a mic, you weren't a lead. And I was like devastated, even though they were like, we can hear you. You're the only one on stage who doesn't need a mic. Cause I was like Merman, you know, even at 11 years old, but I was like, I don't care. I want a mic and I didn't get one. And you know, that's, it's, it's fine, but I'm not holding on to that at all. Anyway. Um, <laughs> then the other time was when, I didn't get 13 and I was at that time, 16 years old. And there are other people in my life that that's the same thing. Right. But you just sort of, um, I was just backstage of wicked the other day and honored because they don't have anyone backstage of wicked with COVID. And I was photographing Talia Suskauer's, uh, last few days of, her preparing backstage of Alphaba, and they allowed me to be backstage of all of act one, which was really cool. And um, the way that she and other Alphabas um, I've experienced talk about their, their standbys and their understudies. And it is never, uh, there's never a sense of competition or jealousy. It's always a conversation about support and friendship and I was looking in the closet and I was like, oh, there's, I guess, a backup Alphabet Act 2 dress because that's, you know, a really important, that's her one costume basically in Act 2. And the dresser was like, no, this is MK's, this is the standbys. And I was like, just to even have this, the costumes in that space, I think really says something about psychologically these alphabets sharing this time together and being supportive of one another. And that's, I think, a lesson that everyone can take with them if they had an experience like me where there is that like alternate experience or someone is booking things over you it's it's a reminder to be like we can always have the alphabet act two dress in the same closet you know what i mean yeah. it's this sense of sharing the space instead of well i'm over here you're over there we'll call you when we need you kind of attitude no it's a it's always a shared space I think COVID was an excellent example and with the renewed sense of attention on understudies mm. and standbys, I think it's been a good thing for our industry just to a reminder about the work that they do because, you know, at, at being an understudy myself, when I was on tour, you're constantly rehearsing, you're constantly up on the roll, you're constantly ready to go on. So there's always this preparedness for it. So even though I never went on, especially in Evita, I never went on. But I was I was ready. I was still doing mm. the role. I was still doing the part. And so it's uh, there. There is this shared experience that I think is very important. That uh, that actors uh, feel a sense of community with each other. Yeah, I think it's really important. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This gets us into story number two, and you got COVID pretty early on. And so you're one of these COVID long haulers that had it early and it just kind of stuck with you. How has that affected you as a performer, but also just as a person in general? Yeah, I really try to look at the positives in terms of like, it was a really shitty situation, literally, and I'll get into that. Oof. 
Like I got sick in March of 2020. And, you know, that was back when big symptom was losing smell and taste. And it doesn't really happen that much anymore. Just, I, I guess the strains or the, you know, the variants and stuff like that. And the boosters, I don't know what it is, but um, it doesn't really happen that much anymore. And it was even before, like, we even knew that smell and taste was a symptom. So like, when I lost my smell and taste, the Forbes article had just came out that day or the day before saying loss of smell and taste might be a symptom of COVID-19. So like, that is that early. Uh, Broadway had not even shut down yet. Broadway was about to shut down. And it was while I was sick, March 13th, um, Broadway shut down. And we quarantined and stuff like that. And my friend was living in my building and we were quarantining together. And one day we decided to do uh, an like a rinky dink eight minute ab exercise. And I couldn't make it through minute four. Something was very wrong. I, it had, you know, it was the first time I was exerting myself and I was per being personally trained like three times a week. I'm, you know, I've been exercising my whole life. Something was very wrong. I was very nauseous. I felt like I was going to, I had to pass out. I couldn't breathe. It was like so much. And then there were studies saying if you had COVID, you shouldn't exercise for a bit. And I was experiencing that. I was like, whoa, this has completely changed my body. And I started to notice as the months go on, things start to go really strange. So my breathing was really bad. I would lose my breath on the couch. My legs were like swollen and hurting at like 6 p.m. and on. And I was passing a lot of blood. Like I was going to the bathroom and it was like a fucking murder scene. Excuse, excuse my language. And I was like, that isn't correct. <laughs> like that right. shouldn't be happening. So colonoscopy, nothing. And then I went to like three different doctors where they basically all gaslit me telling me that I was fine. And I was like, I don't think I am. I think I have a blood clot because now by the time this is, this is now six months, a year, a year and a half, two years, Oof. I'm having this. And I was like, I have a blood clot. I know I have a blood clot because this, there's no reason why this is happening. I think I've, you know, and all of these studies were coming out about blood clots, blood clot. So then finally I got seen by a doctor who took a look at me and went, you have a blood clot. And he's like, I know. So finally he gave me this medication that worked and that helped. But I think under stressful situations, I think some, I think some new things in life certainly trigger these flat, these flare ups. And when I'm more stressed, I have those flare ups again where where i see how covid certainly impacted me and i have friends that have parasmia they can't eat garlic they can't drink coffee they're still having breathing issues they're still dealing with this they're still dealing with that and ultimately what that did positively was help me understand the boundaries that i can put on myself to then exist in a day-to-day -day life right so um, I was working before COVID. I was working insane hours, doing crazy things with work, pushing, 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 never saying no. And when I tried to do that after I had COVID, 
I felt like I was going to die. I truthfully, it was like, there's no, I don't even have the brain capacity anymore. And now I feel like I live a much healthier lifestyle in terms of schedule and relationships because COVID told me to, you got to chill out for a second. Yeah. I mean, COVID changed not only our industry, but it changed us as individuals. And certainly for you, it seems like it was this red flag to let you know, hey, you you may be pushing yourself, you may be going too far. Did it ever make you have to pull back or think, well, I can't do as much now, I need to do less? Did it affect your career in that way? Yeah, there are certain things that I actually had to stop and leave because I physically couldn't do it or I didn't have the capacity to include it in my life. And, you know, I'm really proudly an actor, photographer, producer, writer, podcaster, educator. And um, I love doing, you know, having all of those hyphens, having all of those proficiencies. But what I realized was it doesn't necessarily mean I have to do them at every time that there is a science behind being a multi-hyphenate. And so I really figured out like, what the science was for me specifically and what the boundaries were. So that included, you know, being a a healthier working artist. Um, I had to implement no into my life a lot. Well, I mean, I certainly don't do as much as you do when it comes to the various jobs and tasks that you take on. And I find it hard to get everything done. What has been your secret to juggling all these various jobs that you put on yourself? Vodka. (laughs) Sure, sure. That certainly helps some days, right? Um, a very, and I, you know, I really, this was implemented very clearly when I started working with my friend, Ashley Kate Adams, who talks about this in her book, Be Your Own Producer, Workflow. And she asks the question about like, that really was like, whoa, yeah, I know this, but I didn't know that this had to do with my success in my day was... Just when do you work best? And I work best in, it just depends on certain things, right? Like I love waking up, making some tea, sitting at my computer at 7 a.m. and doing edits, answering emails, writing, doing more of the like, not journaling, but using my words and sending out emails. And because I wake up with a bunch of ideas, right? And so I'm like, oh, got to get those down so I don't forget them. And I edit and I send those emails and then, or I'll, you know, talk to someone on a podcast like right now. And then at 12 o'clock I have a shoot and then three o'clock I have a shoot. So I work my shoots best in the middle of the day. And then that leaves me time later on to do something not so day-to-day, not so quotidian. And that's maybe, you know, take a few meetings or go see the shows or or go have the dinner meetings, like whatever it is. About 5.30 p.m. is usually like saved for that stuff. And then dinner time and being a real person and stuff like that. Basically, I shut off the computer at about 5.36 and then I'm, you know, cooking or going out to dinner or going to see a show or spending time with my family. So, and then on Friday, so that's Monday through Thursday. And then on Fridays is my big, um, I'm either teaching at NYU or I'm getting a lot of computer work done editing podcasts, stuff like that. And then I have my weekend. 
Saturday, Sunday, where I barely do anything. So I can actually like, and that was a huge thing was I never took weekends before I had COVID. I was always working on Saturday and Sunday. And now I have to have Saturday and Sunday for my brain and for even physically to recoup and get ready for the week. That So that's basically like my schedule and like how I operate now. Well, that taps into that no that you were talking about. Before you were saying yes to everything, yes, seven days a week, but now saying no gives you a chance, as you say, to recuperate, to refresh and just be a real person for a couple of days. Yeah, there are so many things that like, even like when I had a for now job, which is what I call a survival job, like I took my lesson from Mary Poppins, which I always do. She always, you know, I have her as a tattoo right here and she always leads me in the right direction. Um, When I was working at a soap store, when I first moved to the city, I made sure that I never worked on Sundays because just like she never works on Tuesdays, I didn't want to work on Sundays because having brunch with my friends was very important to me. It was so that I can have that New York experience and feel like I was in New York and feel like I was a resident of New York and living my dream and being here and that I could audition on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and also work my for now job without feeling like I was missing something. And it was one very small thing that sometimes I was made you know, to feel guilty about because they were like, we really need you to work Sunday. And I was like, I really don't have to. I, I, you know what I mean? I've, I'm working five out of the seven days a week, which was the agreement thing. You know, that's how much you need me to be on the schedule. And I am, I'm just not working on Sunday. And I put my foot down for that because that was something I needed. And it's not a big thing. It's not a big thing. Um, But it can feel like a big thing because a lot of times, even as actors, we may take on a few extra things that the producers need or the director needs, or, you know, we want to say yes, because we don't want to seem like a, you know, a bad actor. We don't want to lose the job because we, you know, we can feel like, oh, if I say no, then they'll find someone else. So that saying no can be very difficult to, to separate and put ourselves first. Yeah, 100%. I think it's really true. I mean, that's when also having teams, having agents, managers, entertainment lawyers really comes into play so that you don't have to be the one to only advocate for yourself, but your team can. I think so many times we're put into, you know, weird positions on the spot where even myself, right? Like I had a client in my headshot. I'm in my I'm in my photo studio right now. I had a client that, you know, purchased one very specific package um, that requires a certain setup from me and it's two looks. And then all of a sudden, you know, they were like, Oh, can we just do this? Can we just do that? And then it kept going. And I was like, wait, why am I saying yes to this? Like you only paid for this just like everyone else did. And I deserve to like, I've been working with you this whole time. Like I deserve to be like, no, we're done. If you would like to, you know, continue. I can get you back on the schedule for more where you would compensate me for X, Y, and Z. And um, also like, what if, what if I had plans that night, which I did, you know, I had to get down to another thing, but it's like, we even outside of the rehearsal room, you know, we are allowed to be in complete, we can be in complete control. We have agency. I just made a TikTok about this one specific thing, but when I was an intern at a theater, getting my first EMC points, you know, because even though I was working at equity houses when I was a kid, they didn't give them to us. 
So when I was in college um, and getting EMC points at this theater, I, you know, auditioned, got the internship, uh, was cast in the shows. And basically I had to sign a paper that was like, you'll do anything we tell you to do. And that was including building the sets, doing box office, doing the children's shows, doing the main stages, doing literally of setting up this, setting up that, doing everything. And one day I was in rehearsal and I had a big role in one of the main stage shows. And the tech director bursts in, says, I need Michael. And the director's like, why? And goes, he needs to build my set. And she and she was like, he's literally blocking his, I don't care, you want your set built? And then took me out through a power tool in my hand and told basically had me build the set for the rest of the day. And when I talked to the artistic director about it, they said, well, sometimes we just have to pay your dues. Hmm. And I was like, why? Like in that moment, I could have, I'm actually really proud of myself that I didn't. If it was today, I could have been like, well, um, if you can just switch my flight to tomorrow morning, that would be great. I could, but back then, you know, this was a different time before eight actors had agency before artists had agency and knew that they could be like, no, this actually isn't a safe space for me for X, Y, and Z. And, um, you're paying me $125 a week for this. And yes, I agreed to it. It's no one's fault except mine, but I am able to get out of the situation. And I pushed through, I did the three months there and I learned a lot. I actually, you know, love using power tools now. So I'm thankful for the experience, but it's not everyone's experience. It's not safe for everyone. And no one should feel that they are tied down to an unsafe space just because they feel like they're going to get a few extra equity points or they're going to get blacklisted from the industry. You know, it should be a much safer environment than that. Normally at this time, you hear me talking about joining WinMe as a monthly or yearly subscriber to get early access to the full episode with audition stories and the final five included. And while I'd still appreciate your contributions to this podcast, for this episode, I'm actually going to give you the full conversation with Michael so that you can experience what subscribers generally get before you. So after Michael's third story, I hope you enjoy his audition story with 13 the musical and him answering the final five questions. And I hope it will help you consider joining other subscribers in supporting Why I'll Never Make It. This gets us into story number three. People think you've given up performing because they know you as the photographer, the podcaster, the teacher, you know, all these other things that you've taken on. So acting can take a back seat. Now, is it one of many things maybe down the list? No, there are times where I battle with where I'm like, you know, I just had a, I just had an interesting conversation with myself the other day where I have a manager and I love my management, but I was like having this weird conversation with myself about being an actor. And it's like, huh, I feel like an actor again because of the specific things that I was saying to myself, you know, cause like there were times where I was like, Maybe I shouldn't be performing anymore. Maybe it's done. Maybe it, you know, ran its course. But it's sort of like, for me, if we were to look at it like a car, right? Photography is in the front seat. Acting is like in the glove compartment. It's like when it's really needed. 
And sometimes it's really needed for me. Sometimes I need performing to, to ground me, to be like, ah, yes, you still have, you see, that's a way that you can communicate. Because I think multi-hyphenating is great because people are always like, what's your biggest advice for young people in the industry? And I think the biggest thing is that oftentimes the way that you are going to be telling stories in this industry is not in the way that you had anticipated. So I am telling the story of Wicked through the lens. I had always thought I was going to be telling the the story of Wicked as Bach, but I'm telling it through the lens and I'm telling a really specific story of Wicked, which is really kind of cool as someone that loves Wicked. I am working on a project with four-time Carbonell award-winning Elena Garcia based in Miami. I'm working on a project of hers that is a Cuban-American specific story, but I can't tell that as a performer. I'm not Cuban-American. I'm helping tell it as a producer and elevate and, and giving that space, you know, that story, the space. As an actor, it's few and far between for me right now because I've been very clear about the types of projects that I want to do, the types of projects that I would leave New York for um, and photography for. So that's sort of few and far between for me. But I know that because I'm so specific that when I do audition for stuff, I get callbacks because that stuff that I'm auditioning for lives in me so deeply. And I am not, I do not feel I need to audition for every single thing because I have other ways I'm telling stories that are fulfilling. So I'm not, I don't need, and this is for me personally, not for you, not for your listener. So I don't want someone to think that they shouldn't be. I don't feel the need for me personally to audition for the wizard of Oz at Kansas city starlight, because if we're looking at it on paper and without trying to sound pompous or anything, I make, what they pay in a week in a day in my studio and is the wizard of Oz a show I need to do. That is a part of who I am as an artist. I don't think so. At least dropping everything and going and doing that for a month and a half, two months. Um, So that's sort of how I think about it. And people will say, well, that doesn't make you an actor. I'm like, well, then what makes you an actor? Like why, first of all, why do you feel that you need to, like judge me and my experience as an actor, these rules, there is no industry standard. I don't have to do what you're doing. I don't have to audition for every single thing. I can say no to my management team because we have gone into this agreement knowing that I'm going to be specific. Like your experience is not my experience and that's okay. And everyone thinks that you have to do this, this, and this to be an actor, to be working in the city. And most of the actors that you see on Broadway are there because the stakes are lower for them because they walk in, they tell the story, they leave, and they go on their merry way and do other things with their life. And that's cool. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, the point you're getting at, and I completely agree with, that this is a journey that is very specific to each individual. And that the path to get there and the path through it is going to be different as well. Yeah, there's, you know, this industry is really weird because we have, it's like very artistic and very us and holistic. 
And then there's also like the commercial business aspect, right? Oftentimes rejection can feel like they're rejecting my soul, but they're not. They're rejecting a commercial aspect about you. And I think once we realize that, I think actors need to start understanding what they have to start looking at themselves like a store, right? Taking stock about the things that they offer and the things that they are selling. What is in the display? What's in the window? What are you telling us that casting directors and directors and producers are attracted to? What makes them come into the store? And then what are on your shelves? What are the things that you got, the skills that you got, the the talent that you have? Like what is inside your store? And I think so many people take their stores and they try to uh, sell their wares to people that aren't interested in their stuff. And so it feels like they are rejecting them. But really, you know, for an actor, I think you have to be really responsible in, in for yourself in terms of knowing what you have to offer. You have to really take a look at yourself in the mirror, phys- metaf- metaphorically and literally, and go, what am I offering? But there is also the aspect of you never know what happens if you just show up. So I'm just saying, like, I don't think necessarily you have to spend so much time and energy going to every single EPA, ECC, every single audition just to go. I think that there are better, healthier ways to exist in the industry. Because what happens with the brain is every time you're singing a song and you're getting rejected, your brain is starting to correlate singing and rejection or yeah. acting and rejection. And it becomes it becomes aware in us, oh, I have to sing again. I guess I'm, you know, it's just going to be another audition. No, this is this should be a time where you feel empowered you're telling a story you're using your art so be better to yourself and don't give it away so much give it away to the people that are coming to your stores that are opening the door and going ah i've been looking for this store you know what i'm saying yeah well i mean this is something that you've done a few years back back in 2018 you produced, wrote, created your own one-man show. And so you were kind of taking that bull by the horns. You were bringing all the components of your store together in order to create this show, Move With Me. And what led you to create that and make you think that, okay, I can take this step and I don't need a casting director or a producer to tell me what I can and can't do? Yeah, I could say you could take you're taking the bull by the horns, but for me, I was taking a, a camel by the hump and I'll tell you why. So I was auditioning, I was getting callbacks. My my agent had dropped me. I had a bum manager that literally ghosted me and then stopped responding to emails. And then I said, hi, I found other representation that would like to work with me. Thank you so much. And immediately responded being like, thank you. <laughs> and I was like, this is very, very strange. Um, so uh, I had you know, a bunch of things in the industry, right? Doing a lot of readings, doing this and not getting the show. And that's fine. And, you know, there's no, it, it is what it was. And I'm starting photography and things like that. And I was like, I feel like I need to tell a specific story with my own humor, tell people the type of artist that I am with my specific story, my lessons and things like that. So, so I photographed Adina. Uh, I wrote the story on a post on Facebook and Ben Rimmelauer 
who has a show called uh, Patty Issues and Bad With Money to one-person shows. He was like, that's a show. You need to write that into a show. And so he was doing Patty Issues and said, why don't I do Patty Issues and then you do this show. You write the show and you do it after me. And we'll do like a double header. And that's exactly what I did. So I wrote the show. I had like 10 friends come to my apartment that I appreciated their insight and they all hated it. And I don't know if they hated it because they were all trying to like show how educated and insightful they were to each other. So they were like, and don't forget about this and also this and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. Everyone's got to go. Bye. Um, So I was like, what? All right. I got to start from scratch. And I was like, this is really interesting because in a few days I leave to go to Israel for 10 days. And then I fly back from Israel and the next day is Broadway con for three days. And on the third day of Broadway con, I was doing the show at night. So I was like, okay, in literally two weeks in 13 days, and then I have the show and I don't have a show anymore. I have to rewrite it. I rewrote it in a day and a half on the flight to Israel. I memorized the new show and throughout the trip i was like going through my line so i literally on a camel in the desert was saying was going through my one person show like in the desert in israel on a camel just like saying the lines <laughs> flew back literally because it's a 10-hour flight ran through the show about six times truthfully in my head had broadway con did broadway con day one day two day three broadway con ended i packed up my booth went to the space and did my show that night. <laughs> that sounds crazy. It sounds it, crazy. It, it sounds exhausting, but also just like so, I would be so anxious about something like that. I just feel like you just got to do what you got to do. Because like the type of career that I really want as that I like then that I have as an actor is getting cast in things that no one knows who else should do it except Michael Kushner. When people are like, who can do that? Michael Kushner. So like, it's it's a small thing, but it was really, really, really empowering. And I did, you know, I was always, I always wanted to be that 54 Below singer that was always in 54 Below shows, but I don't have a pop rock voice. So, you know, there was, for a lot of contemporary writers, like I was getting overlooked. No one was asking me to do stuff. And so I started producing my own stuff at 54 Below and performing in that as well. And then that put me on the scene at 54 Below and I get asked to do stuff now. But it's stuff very specifically. It's very specific stuff. And there was just a Hanukkah show, 54 Celebrates Hanukkah, where it was like seven or eight writers that wrote new, because there's so much Christmas music, why not Hanukkah songs? And I was asked to host it, but with uh, co-hosted with Alana Levine, but... The song that I was given was a a patter song that needed to be sung by a gay guy. And I literally was like, Jen, I have to do the song and to Jen Sandler. And Jen contacted the composer, Danny K. Bernstein, and was like, I have the perfect person for this and gave me the patter song. And it was like a six or seven minute long patter song about Hanukkah and no one else could do it. 
You know what I mean? Like that was my song. Like, yes, other people could do it, but not as good as me. And I can't say that about a a million things, but as artists, we're allowed to be like, that's my song. No one's ever going to do that as good as me. We're allowed to do that. We we are allowed to do that. I've had those roles where I'm, I'm like, as it goes through, I'm like, each like this character is me. Like yeah. I, I can only bring to this something that no other actor could bring to it. Yeah. Right. And it, so it's a small thing, right? It's a 54 below show, but it was so empowering because I nailed the song, got, you know, great for the reviewers that were in the space at the time. Like I got great reviews, like called out because of the song, you know, like there were people in the audience, clients of mine that happened to do the show where they were going to shoot with me and they didn't know me as a performer and they got to see me as a performer that night. So, you know, there's, again, looking at what we do as a, as a business, multi-hyphenating as a business, but we have to look at everything we do as a business, right? Performance, acting is a business. Like it's okay to literally be like, no one can do this better than me. This other things, sure, people can do better than me, a million things. But this song, this was written for me. Only I could do this well. And you have to have that energy when you're walking into a room, when you're meeting with your agents and managers, when you're getting your headshots, when you're rehearsing. You have to be that confident. I absolutely agree. Now, for you, you have a podcast, Dear Multi-Hyphenate. You teach classes. You've been multi-hyphenating yourself for such a long time. What led you or made you think, well, now I need to put it in book form? Um, A few things. I'll start with the small one, a small motivator. That's not the main one. And the small one was I started noticing people using the word in a way that I didn't agree with, that I started to see it as a buzzword, a word that didn't have any meaning. When I, on my podcast and in articles that I was writing, like for backstage or whatever, like, I had worked so hard figuring out the science of this and how people were on social media just talking about it in this like thing that didn't make any sense. So I didn't want it to be a buzzword. So I was like, all right, I feel like I got to have my stamp on this. I got to like officially come out with something that like tangibly is like on the record as this is it. I've always wanted to write a book about something. And the story is really cool, actually. Basically, I have a friend who is an assistant publisher at William Morris. And I was like, I would love for you to publish this book. And they were like, okay, make this proposal. Here's what we need. So I wrote a proposal of 76 pages. They were like, okay, great. Thank you so much. Can you like cut that in half? I did. They rejected it. And I was like, all right. So I sat with it for a second. Pandemic happens. I get an email from this wonderful man, Raphael Hayen, who is the chair of the theater department at University of Massachusetts, Boston. And he emails me and goes, hi, Michael, I'm writing a book that's getting published by Rutledge Publishing. I I would like to use a photo that you took. Can I have your permission? I said, yes, you have my permission. But also, what's the book about? Blah, 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 blah. Well, I have a book that's about this. And he said, can you Zoom tomorrow morning first thing? And I said, absolutely. He gets on Zoom. He goes, we need to make this book happen. My students need it. And I was like, okay. So he helps me write the proposal for Rutledge and he helped me get a book deal. Mm. I mean, again, it comes back to this idea of community, this idea that we're here to help uplift each other. And this this sense of competition, it may be there, but there's a sense of just because he had a book doesn't mean that you can't have your book and they can coexist and be successful together. 
Exactly. And also a testament of being like, I have this and I know it's good. I know I'm the person to tell the story. Like, and then it happened. Like I once had someone, it was really wild. I got a text message out of the blue from someone I had worked with. I think they had just like picked my brain about being multi-hyphenate too. They were like asking me a bunch of questions and basically interviewing me. And then I got a text message from them a few weeks later that was like, hey, Michael, I just want to let you know that I'm starting a podcast about being a multi-hyphenate. And I went, okay, well, there's some, there's some things that I'm a little concerned about. Um, and they responded saying, well, I'm just telling you out of respect, I'm not asking you for your permission. And I was like, whoa, okay. Well, why don't you just because there's some trademark copyright things like legal things, why don't you have your people call my lawyer just to like really figure this out and make sure that there's no infringement happening here. And I like a second later, I got, Hey, Michael, I just spoke to my team. Never mind. We're not going to move forward with this. Thanks so much. <laughs> and I was like, okay, if that was really your story to tell, then you would have, worked for it and you would have pushed it and you would have had a whole thing. But also why are you telling the story when it's not from your perspective? You are basically copying and pasting what I'm doing. Why don't you come up with your own perspective? There are a million theater, television, film, podcasts out there, but the successful ones like this one have an angle, have a specific point of view. And it's coming from you. You know, what does Sondheim say? Anything you do, let it come from you, then it will be new. He says that in Sunday the Park with George. So it's the same thing about creating, right? Like there's no like there's no reason why you can't come up with a podcast about being an artist with multiple proficiencies. But why do you have to do exactly what I'm doing? Then it's not going to last because I'm going to stay innovative. I'm going to stay true to me. I'm going to keep pushing. And you're not going to, that tells me that you're not an innovative person. And that tells me that you are not forward thinking. You are doing the, you are lazy and doing the easy way out. And look, it fell apart because literally you were not willing to fight for it. And you have to be willing to fight for something when you create something. So not only did I write a few articles about being a multi-hyphenate, but I wrote a book on it. I live it. I am an actor, photographer, producer, writer, podcaster, educator, and I do all of those things very professionally. I get paid for them. There is a paper trail and it brings me joy. Like I live and eat and sleep and breathe my hyphens and being a multi-hyphenate. So I'm going to create a podcast on it. I'm going to write a book on it. I'm going to come talk on other podcasts about it. I'm going to be known for it. I'm going to fight for it always because that's how I've been living as an artist for 22 years since I started in this industry. So don't f with me, fellas. I own 51% of this company. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
We're going to take a step back again with your audition story because I love this. And it goes back to that beginning when you started. So you're in final callbacks for 13, the musical, and you're going to be in front of Mr. Jason Robert Brown. So tell us how that goes. I think it was final callbacks. I don't know if it was. I, oh, I've for said, our story, it is. Of course it is. Yeah, I love it. it. I love it. I've definitely like, I've definitely said before that it was final callbacks mainly because like I flew up for it and it was in front of the team and, you know, it was, it was the only reason why I'm, I'm thinking it wasn't like final, final callbacks was just because I didn't have like sides in my hand, but maybe they didn't do that. I don't know, but I was singing for Jason around anyway. I flew up from Florida and Mark Simon casting wanted a pop rock song and I didn't have anything. So this was 2007, 2008. So I learned one of my favorite songs, which was Hey There Delilah, was coached on it, learned the whole thing. They wanted, they said that they wanted the full song. So I'm up there, I'm in Ripley Greer for the first time. I flew up from Florida to New York. I look cute. I think I'm in a red turtleneck, you know, just because I was very, I was based my entire style off of Jafar at that time. So I was probably in a red turtleneck, black boots and black pants. And um, I sang a Hey There Delilah and literally just like the full 30, like three minute, 30 second version. Like I open up an imaginary laptop. I'm webcamming with the person I'm talking to. Hey There Delilah, what's it like in New York City? Like this is before Zoom. So Jason, all he does at the end is just go, Michael, what are you really saying? And without batting an eye, I went, I love a piano. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes, all right, let's hear I love a piano. And I said, I love a piano. I love a piano. <laughs> just giving him like Merman, Broadway, jazz hands. And he was like, thanks so much, Michael. And I said, thank you. And I'm still waiting for the call to this. <laughs> right, right. Like, why didn't he cast you on the spot? But that's so interesting that he was able to see that, okay, mm -hmm. this isn't what Michael Kushner does. He has something else within him. And I think it's so important that we don't wait for others to give us permission to be ourselves. Today, I would pay money for that question from Jason Robert Brown. You know what I mean? It's like, if I had really no, I mean, I was young, I was 16. I hadn't even been living in the city yet. And the, you know, South Florida theater industry is very different than the New York theater industry. <laughs> but, I've been there. Yes. Yes. But like, I wish that I had known that that was a golden question. Sing something else. I would have had, I don't know what I would have had prepared. I probably would have had, if it were today, I would have had springtime for Hitler ready to go. I would have had, Rose's turn ready to go. I would have had, you know, songs that are so undeniably me ready to go so that, you know, I love a piano isn't, wasn't me. It just, I happened to have it ready in my book. And I think I was the easiest one that I didn't have to like that, you know, cause I was so in that moment being like, he wants something else. All right. What can I give him when I could have like taken a breath and like, Hmm, I have this, this, and this, is there something specific you'd want to hear or go, okay, let's, let's think this one out blah 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 and do this instead because i know i had multiple songs i came from a pre-professional high school theater program so i knew i had options um but i went with that i think it was just because the the no-brainer i could just do it 
But now what a golden opportunity, what a golden question for that. So one day, JRB, one day I'm going to come in for you again. And you're going, Michael, what are you really saying? And I'm going to give you Rose's turn. <laughs> and it'll be like, yes, I will now write a musical for you. Yeah. And also deja vu. Like, didn't we, weren't we here? Didn't we experience this? All right, well, let's get to these final five questions. So number one, what do you remember most about your very first professional show? A Stoop in Orchard Street would be my first professional show. I remember the feeling of working with adults and feeling like I was one of them. I was professional. I And I held myself to a really high standard as well. I wanted to do a really great job. I wanted to impress. I wanted to tell the story. I didn't want to be a kid. I think that was the other thing was I was the only kid in the show other than my alternate, you know, Aaron, but I didn't want to be a kid in that space. I wanted to be an adult. I wanted to play with the big guys. I wanted to, to do that. That's what I remember the most, that feeling. And then number two, how would you say the industry has changed since that first experience? Oh, I mean, it, it's, it's night and day. It's different experiences. I think back then it was a lot grittier and a lot less polished. I think it became less of the um, BFAA, you know, journey, musical theater, pop rock riffing. You know, it just was, you, you got on stage, you told the story and you went home. And it was a little more like, for me, roar, of, smell of the grease paint, roar of the crowd energy. Yeah, yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. There's definitely more of a of a sheen, a filter to it now that it didn't have. It was a little more hoofer energy, and you know, it's that's changed. Yeah. Number three, what does success or making it mean to you? I think there has to be the element of love. There has to be a love involved. If you're not doing anything with love, then I don't think that there it's successful. I think you have to find the love. When it comes to this multi-hyphenate, then do you need success in each of those hyphens or does one success make up for maybe a less than another? Or how does that work? You know, I say um, multi-hyphenating is very Jewish to me because there are four questions. It's like Passover. I think, you know, you have to get paid for it. You have to have a paper trail. Like I can Google you or go on your social media and see that you're doing this thing. Um, they all have to affect each other. And the fourth one is, does it bring you joy? So I think each, I don't think you can do a hyphen and not have it bring you joy because I think for each hyphen you're working on, that means you're dealing with rejection. So multi-hyphenates have to deal with four, five, six, seven, eight times the amount of rejection than someone that doesn't identify as a multi-hyphenate. So you really have to go, am I willing to add this to my artistic identity and deal with all of that? rejection because I love it so much because it brings me so much joy. So I think that's a a massive, massive part of it. And you have to implement it into your life mm. for every hyphen. No, yeah, I, I really like that. And this leads us right into number four, which is describe a personal lesson that's taken you a while to learn or one that you are still working on to this day. Comparison. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm always comparing myself and comparing myself. Good. Comparing <laughs> myself. Um, Comparing myself, I feel, I write this in the book, you know, comparison is not always the thief of joy. We always hear comparison is the thief of joy. But when it comes to the industry, comparing yourself to others can be a really useful tool as long as it is, it stays a useful tool. I think when we go, what we were talking about in the beginning, why did this 
person book this and I didn't, that's not helpful. But saying like, whose career do I want to steal? Oh, I want to steal Mel Brooks's. Comparing him to yourself and the stories and the point of views is a helpful tool because you go, all right, I would love to create history of the world part three, you know, now that two is out, I'd love to create history of the world part three or something like that. I, I, that comparison is a helpful, useful tool when it's not used to beat yourself down or beat someone else down. Well, yeah, I think it's comparison that is forward looking. It gives you a path forward. Like how can I do this or how can I do it better? Or, you know, go a step further rather than, Oh, I really sucked. I didn't do this. I'm horrible. Right. Yeah. It's forward looking rather than backward looking. Exactly. Yeah. And so finally, number five, what is the most useful advice that you have received and how have you applied it? Don't suck. It's very succinct. Yeah. I think whatever you do, just do it well. If you're doing it professionally, do it well. You know, of course, failure is always prevalent, but like you could do something really well and still fail. I think you, you fail all the time, fail all the time. I'm going to, you know, I failed yesterday. I failed the day before. I failed the day before that. I'm going to fail again today. I'll fail again tomorrow and the day after that. And it's sort of like Pandora's box thing where like you have to fail in order to not fail. So you're always going to fail in hopes of not failing. But by you failing, that means you're trying something new and you're taking a risk and you're pushing yourself. So failing is really, I, so I think really the lesson is to fail. You have to fail. So when do you know that a failure is just, oh, I need to adjust this to this and then I can do it better rather than this is a failure. Oh, this isn't for me. Yeah. I think like there's like, you know, organizational failures, right? Like there was one big one where I remember I was holding an audition for musical theater factory and the person I was working with was like, please print out the papers because what if we have an internet outage and we can't access people's information? And I was like, we're not going to have an internet outage. We had an internet outage of all days. You know what I mean? And I didn't print out the papers. So I had to print out the papers. I was delayed. You know, that's a small failure. That's annoying, but prevents me from doing that again. Then there are other failures where I take a big job, a massive job, and it's not a great situation. So, and I have to learn that. And if I take that job again in another way, those failures of understanding like why I left or why it wasn't good, what did I do that didn't put me in a good situation? What did other people do? How did I respond to other people? There's all of those different elements that will help the next time be better. If there is a next time, I might've failed so miserably that I'm literally like never touching that again. You know what I mean? But, or I've failed miserably enough where I'm like, ah, I miss doing it. Just not in that situation. And the next time I do it, I'll make sure that the situation is better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's as they say, you know, failure is a, is a great teacher. And I think we, we have to learn from it, even if it means, so oh, don't do that again. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your, your candor and just honesty with this. And, and my and ebb. Your what? You said my candor. Uh, Don't forget my ad. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Your puns. I love it. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for bringing all this. I love a piano. This. I love a piano. <laughs> love it. Of course. I'm so glad that I'm here. I'm so glad we had this time together. Thank you, Carol. <laughs> Appreciate that. 
Thank you for joining me and Michael today. And remember, you'll get early access to future episodes by becoming a WinMe subscriber. But I never want finances to keep anyone from this bonus content. So if a monthly or yearly subscription isn't possible for you, then please contact me at it at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to offer you a reduced price or even free subscription. There's also an email link you can find in the show notes. Well, until next time, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and publishing this podcast, which is a production of WinMe Media. Background music used in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and John Bartman. Be sure to join me in two weeks as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.